So welcome to this uh, day long on the theme of uh, the thinning of the self or exploring this fundamental teaching of anatta or not-self. Again, wonderful to see a lot of familiar faces and then a lot of new faces. Uh, my name is Donald Rothberg and I thought I'd introduce myself briefly. And of course, on a day when we're exploring not-self, any talk about introducing myself has a <laughs> certain, uh, what, um, paradoxical quality to it, <laughs> which we will try to cultivate during the day. Um, so um, I often introduce myself in, you know, in, in three ways in terms of my background related to meditation and this practice. Uh, First, uh, have a fairly long-term grounding in traditional practice. You know, have spent time at monasteries uh, in Thailand and um, have a grounding in the teachings and practices. And I'm one of the Spirit Rock teachers. And have been practicing mindfulness and the loving-kindness, other practices for over 35 years. So it's been, it's really a big part of who I am. Again, every time I say that, I, a little bit of quotation marks are flying around, right? So, um, and I've also been um, a practitioner uh, early on in the Zen tradition and uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, a lot in Tibetan tradition as well, particularly uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra, for those who know those practices, and have been influenced by other traditions as well, other religious or spiritual traditions, uh, uh, particularly uh, Christian, Jewish, and indigenous. For a lot of years, I co-led our sweat lodges here with native elder Fred Wapapal. And so I've been influenced by those approaches, and they, of course, have their own understandings of self and not-self. There's a whole area of more traditional practice. And secondly, it's been important to me to uh, really complement that with asking how these practices and understandings work uh, in this culture, given all the pressures, constraints, conditioning of this culture. How do we work with everyday life in this culture? How do we work with all of the social conditioning and so forth? And so um, in that context, I've been very interested in what really can make this work in daily life. I've been interested in the intersection of meditation and psychology have a background in uh, body-based psychotherapy, particularly the, the Hakomi approach. Uh, so that's a second area. And a third area is, is for a long time, probably 25 plus years, I've been very interested in the connection of inner work and social service and social change. And I've been involved a lot with training programs for people wanting to make those connections uh, here at Spirit Rock and also elsewhere. And so all of those perspectives will come into uh, the day. Traditional practice, psychological perspectives, uh, social perspectives as well. I think they're all very important for exploring 
this theme of uh, uh, not-self and what I'm calling the thinning of the self, looking for the thick self. I'm using that metaphor. Um, I hope that's helpful. You know, it's not, uh, um, but um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll talk about that more as we go on. So just to say a little bit about the structure of the day, and then we'll get right into the, uh, not, we'll get further into it, because we've already got into it with the meditation. So uh, we'll get further into the, the theme of, of anatta. Um, so I've structured the day in terms of four segments. And uh, in the middle will be lunch. <laughs> lunch, I'm... Uh, approximately 12.30, we'll have about an hour for lunch, and we'll talk about lunch when we get there. It's an important area for self and not self. And uh, then, otherwise, there are four segments of the day, uh, two before lunch and two after lunch, two segments in here, and uh, the two segments will be um, divided, as it were, by walking period. So we'll have a segment which will go for about another 45 minutes or so. And then we'll have about a half hour walking period. That's also a time when could use the bathrooms. But uh, if you know the time frame, you can also, if you need to, just use the bathroom when you need to. But to know that there'll be those walking periods and lunch uh, just naturally in the schedule. And so we'll come back for a second segment uh, before lunch. Then about an hour for lunch, about 1.30 to 3 or so, there'll be a third segment, and then a half hour walking, and then a fourth segment. And um, I'll just say generally what the themes will be. In this first segment, uh, it'll be more of an overview, an introduction to the theme of self and not-self. In the second segment before lunch, we'll be particularly looking at the nature of the self and what I'm calling the thick self, when, this, you know, what's, when the self gets big or strong or thick, whatever metaphor we use. We'll be looking at really at the nature of the self, especially in that segment. And then in the uh, afternoon, the third segment, we'll be particularly looking at not-self. In the third segment, through the traditional teaching, particularly, of the five skandhas, or the five aggregates, which is really the main way that this teaching is presented traditionally. And then in the fourth segment, we'll look further at some further dimensions of not-self, and we'll also make connections with how we apply this in daily life, although that will be probably be a theme throughout the day. Okay? And maybe just one or two more logistical matters. Uh, I think if you are doing CEU, you should have uh, talked to Michelle or the person at the back by now. And uh, if, if you haven't done that, I think you should go, I think you, the directions are to go do that right now, I believe. That's usually that way. Is that correct, Michelle? Yeah, okay. And then we also want to say, I'll say more before lunch and maybe before the walking. There is a retreat occurring in the uh, upper area, so not to walk past the gate. Well, I'll say a little bit more about the walking when we get to the walking meditation. So I think that covers it for logistical matters, and I'll, again, I'll talk more about walking and lunch when we, when we get there. So this teaching of anatta is at the heart of the traditional teachings. 
it's one of the three areas of fundamental insight that is liberating, pointed out by the Buddha. You know, we call this practice often insight meditation as a translation of Vipassana. And there are actual groups of insights that are pointed to. And the three insights that are pointed to are particularly insight into impermanence, insight into the nature of suffering and the roots of suffering and the roots of freedom. And thirdly, insight into the nature of the self, the nature of not-self, nature of anatta. And those are the core areas that all of this practice aims at. And so looking at not-self is a very crucial area, very fundamental area. And we'll see how that traditional understanding uh, is explored. But this area of not-self is particularly quite confusing. Has anyone ever been confused by this teaching? <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very confusing area for all sorts of reasons. And I actually want to begin by talking some about the confusions. And um, our primary way of dealing with the subjects is going to be practical. If we try to figure out self and not-self intellectually, and focused a lot on that, we might go in circles. The Thai teacher, Achan Cha, said, if you try to figure out anatta intellectually, your head may explode. (laughs) So our main emphasis will be practical. There there necessarily will be some understanding, some of the uh, teachings and so forth, but I find that the primary way of exploring this is more practical. It's really, it's essentially studying when the self gets thick and opening to experiences where the self is less thick, where there's more of a sense of flow without a sense of self. That's the simple version of the day. There are a lot more subtleties, nuances, and complexities that I want to, that I want to bring in. So it's a very confusing area. You know, what is the self? In some traditions, We want to find out what the self is. This is the core question of human beings. Who am I, right? You know, who am I? Uh, There's a poem by Rumi, the uh, Persian poet, where he likens the human condition to being drunk and wandering from tavern to tavern. And he, at one point in the poem, he says, who am I? Where did I come from? I have no idea. Uh, The writer Catherine Mansfield said, the self is like a concierge with a hotel with a hundred guests. So I hope that clarifies things. (laughs) This is is from the poet Gary Snyder. We live in a universe, one turn, in which it is widely felt all is one, and at the same time, all is many. The extra rooster and I were subject and object until one evening we became one. <laughs> and this is from um, this is from Hunter Pence. <laughs> Commentator on the nature of the self. Hunter Pence is for those who don't know. There was some recognition. Hunter Pence is a 
one of the uh, members of the San Francisco Giants professional baseball team. Okay. This is what he said. I think every day is a different day. You're not the same hitter you were the day before. The pitcher is not the same pitcher. That's the way baseball is. That's the way life is. <laughs> and yet it it's, can be very, very confusing. This is from... Um, this is from a commentator um, who brings together um, Jewish and Buddhist positions and says, the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. <laughs> so maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> And yeah, it, so it's, it's quite confusing. I want to just point to some of the reasons it's confusing. And sometimes that confusion can be painful. You know, I, I heard a story of a young man who went to a Buddhist meditation retreat, heard that there was no self, left the retreat, dropped out of college, and said, if there's no self, what's the point? Right? So, a lot of confusion. And there's confusion from the get-go because often the term anatta is translated as no self, which most scholars think is not a good translation. It actually should be more not self. And, it, and you'll, you, as we'll see, the Buddha didn't explicitly say there's no self, but he was really questioning a prevailing conception of the time as the self, as this permanent, separate, independent entity. And that's what's being questioned. But very confusing because the language in spiritual traditions is very different. In a lot of traditions, one would talk about the true self or the true person. Or in some psychological traditions, you know, in uh, Jung psychology, there's talk about the self with a capital S as the aim of development, you know. Um, and even in Buddhist tradition, sometimes the liberated person is called a maha-atta, which is the same term that was used for Gandhi. It's the term mahatma. Do you remember that for Gandhi? That means great self. Atta is the word in Pali, Atman, in uh, uh, Sanskrit. And the, um, so here you have the Buddha saying, talking about anatta, but then saying a liberated person is like a great self. So that could be confusing. There's another, there are other terms where he talks about the developed self as the person of uh, wisdom and compassion. When one has the first level of enlightenment, one becomes a big person. This is the language. So is that con getting you confused? Okay. I'm, not, I'm, wanna, I'm wanting the confusion to be temporary, but just to see that when we get at the language, it can be very confusing. In some traditions, one talks about Buddha nature, as if there's something solid there. You know, um, in... Loving-kindness practice, we do loving-kindness for other people and for ourselves. 
So if there's no self, what's going on? Right? And so, um, and then there are all sorts of confusions with the very language in English. It's very common to talk about uh, transcending the ego. Have you heard that before? Uh, and there are all sorts of confusions with that language. In uh, mainstream psychology, the ego does not being, mean being self-centered, which is apparently what it means in that phrase, transcending the ego. It means transcending being self-centered. But in the language of psychology, the ego is a necessary function and doesn't have anything to do with self-centeredness. <laughs> right? It has to do with the ability to have some center of experience, to do planning. Let's see, I think I have a quotation from one of the writers who's written... Uh, very cogently on this topic is um, Jack Engler. Let me see if I have this uh, quotation. He says, the, the idea for many psychologists of transcending the ego is meaningless, since ego in this context, a collective term uh, designating the regulatory and integrative functions, is necessary to lose that sense of uh, integration of one's own experience would be to give up the ability to think, plan, remember, anticipate, organize, and self-reflect. Right? And so the terms are used in all sorts of crazy ways. Separately from the fact that the translation from the German of Freud was a very, very bad translation to call Freud's term ego, which happened like whatever. 80, 90 years ago. So layer upon layer of confusion in this area, which we'll try to avoid for the most part just simply by being, by being uh, practical. As if that wasn't enough, when the Buddha was actually asked, is there a self? Let me see if I find this. Yeah. When the Buddha was asked, is there a self? He didn't give a clear answer. So hold on for a bit. This is the, this is the overview of confusion part of the day. <laughs> okay, this is from the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. The wanderer Vachagota approached approached the Buddha and said to him, "How now, Master Gotama? Is there a self?" When this was said, the Buddha was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Buddha was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed. Not long after he had left, the Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's assistant, said to him, Why is it, Venerable Sir, that when you were questioned by the wanderer Vachagota, uh, you did not answer? If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer Vachagota, is there a self, and I had answered there is a self, this would have been siding with one extreme. with those ascetics and Brahmins who are, he says, eternalists, who think there is a self that lasts forever, is independent and permanent. And when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, I would be siding with another extreme. If when I was asked by the wanderer of Achagota, I had asked, is there a self, uh, is there a self, and I had answered, there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part? with the arising of the knowledge that everything is anatta, 
or not self? No, it would not. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wanderer of Atragota, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. So, the Buddha, when he was explicitly asked, did not come down on, on either side. I think it really points to the way that the resolution is more experiential. Again, the Thai teacher Achan Cha once said, the teachings about self are not true. The teachings about not self are also not true. Okay. So, now that we've got the confusion out of the way, uh, we want to really explore this more experientially. We want to explore more experientially the nature of both uh, self and not self. And sort of the strategy that, I, that I'm going to be taking, again, is experientially based. It's to really look for where the self becomes thick and look for where the self becomes thin. And I take these metaphors from uh, Tina Rasmussen and Steven Snyder. Some of you may know them. I think I first heard that metaphor from them, and I found it very, very useful for looking more experientially at the topic. But can you see how it's a very confusing area if you try to deal with it intellectually? You know, very confusing. And you often, how many of you have, you have heard the phrase, no self? As if that's, yeah, again, poor translation can be very, very misleading. And what we'll be really pointing to is the way that, um, and this is, this is what a lot of people point to, is the way that certain aspects of the self are quite important for practice, but that the teaching points also to a way of experiencing without a sense of self. The short version of the day is this. The self is very important for spirit. A sense of self is very important for spiritual practice in multiple ways. And the core problem with a sense of self is that we get stuck around certain aspects of ourself. It can be when there's some wounding from the past, that area becomes a sense of uh, very strong sense of self that I have to protect when there's underlying pain. And or there can be a way that I grasp on to some aspect of self. This is a part of myself that I really like, that I want, that I want to have self-image around. I'm a really good meditator. You know, and I demonstrate that by my uh, choice of clothes and the way I speak calmly and slowly. <laughs> so the problem is going to be when we get stuck or when we grasp around a sense of self. But a functional sense of self is crucial to meditation. And in fact, you, we couldn't meditate without some sense of self, some doing, some actually following the breath. That is really accomplished by a, a kind of self. I, I tend to call this the meditative self. But then as we develop further, and maybe there's some healing around where there's wound, where there's a wound, where we study, where we grasp, where the self becomes thick, where there's self-image, as we develop in that more and more, we also start opening up 
two experiences where the sense of self becomes much thinner. And in fact, probably already we've had all sorts of these experiences and they're actually very uh, much some of the most important experiences of our life. You know, what I find is that there's one aspect of anatta or not self which is actually pretty accessible. And I, I'm going to say a little bit about it now, but just to say that there are ways that we can open to a sense of not self in our daily life, and we'll explore that here also. And then there are deeper dimensions of not self that are especially opened up to in meditation, but also in certain very deep experiences that, that can occur in all sorts of parts of our lives, where we have a set, maybe have a sense of deep interconnection. We can have this uh, in the midst of the mountains or the forest or by the ocean or making love or having that sense of connection be there. And we can have a sense of experiencing in which the usual boundaries of self aren't there and there's a sense of deep connection and even beyond, we go beyond any language. And the teaching of anatta, I think, is pointing to multiple kinds of experiences. Some of them, I think, are very accessible. There are the experience where we're in the flow. There's not much sense of self. And we're just living. You know, we're with the sunset. We're with a friend and so forth. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. And then there are these deeper experiences, which we'll look at especially in the afternoon, where we go beyond... Uh, the usual constructed sense of self. We can train in all of these areas and my hope for the day is that we'll have a very concrete sense of how to cultivate this sense of uh, anatta, working with a thick sense of self, opening up to a thinner sense of self. And we'll also have an understanding that can help us to navigate through some of those confusions. That's my, that's my hope for the end of the day, that we will leave with a sense, here's a way to practice, here's a basic, simple understanding of this very confusing teaching, and to know that it's actually quite accessible. And I want to talk about that briefly now, and then we'll, uh, we'll move into uh, some walking meditation. Um, there, there's, a, there's a very helpful concept that was developed by a uh, Hungarian psychologist, some of you name, may know, named Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. When you look at the name, it's very hard to pronounce, but I, have a, I wrote down here the phonetics, so I'm sounding like I'm just very <laughs> able to speak a Hungarian complicated <laughs> name. Okay. But anyone heard of this uh, psychologist, Csikszentmihalyi? How is it spelled? Uh uh. <laughs> okay. Uh, it begins with C S I K. Uh, C S I K, I will spell it. C S I K S Z E N T M I H A with an accent L Y I. Okay. So, so but let's let's not make fun of it. My my Grandparents came to this country and had a name that people couldn't pronounce and were given a wrong name by immigration. So we want to be sensitive to, to all this. Anyway, but I have a hard time with that name. Most, a lot of people do if you're not from Hungary. 
Anyway, so he had this very interesting concept of um, flow. And he said that it's a very special experience. And for me, this is actually a very accessible way to talk about anatta in a preliminary way. And I wanted to sort of get this out here so we can start tuning into this. And he, this is the experience where we, where we are fully in an activity and there's almost no self-consciousness or self-image. And we're experiencing this all the time, right? Um, this, is, this is the way, this is the way uh, Chiksen Mihai talked about the flow experience. With flow, a person performing an activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by complete absorption in what one does. And so we may experience that in all sorts of ways. Um, we may experience that listening to music, right? We may experience being immersed in nature, being with people we're very close to, you know, where there's no, no need to, to track yourself, to have a sense of uh, self-consciousness. Um, it could be, uh, yeah, could, music and art are very primary forms. Uh, my mom is a musician. My mother is named Bernice. And I was talking with her about self and not self one day. <laughs> Casual conversations. <laughs> and she said that, she told a very interesting story, that when she, she was started to play the piano in a, like in a, a music school, when she was seven years old. And she uh, was self-conscious and anxious. And she was asked to perform at a concert before some of the other students. And the teacher said to her, you know, this isn't about you. It's about the music. Just let yourself fall away and really be absorbed in the music. And she, as a seven-year-old, said, okay. <laughs> And she said she, for whatever reason, has really stayed with that. And she's, in her life, has been a public speaker, musician, and she's never really had self-consciousness in that. But certainly, as a musician, the more one is really with the music, she said, um, when you're performing, it's not good to have a sense of self. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music, right? And there can be that sense of flow. Very, so this is, this is, for me, a very everyday, ordinary, accessible sense of anatta that, we are, that I think we experience all the time. This is from the book of a friend of mine named uh, Andy Cooper, who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone about sports. In sports, you often find that sense of being in the flow. It's called being in the zone, right? in, especially in basketball. Right? And this is, uh, this is from Bill Russell. People know who Bill Russell is? One of the great basketball players of all time from San Francisco, right? I think from Oakland originally. USF. Yeah, USF. And I think, I think born in Oakland, if I remember right. And he said, every so often a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and it would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I would almost sense 
how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought in the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, mm -hmm. except I knew everything would change if I did. Yeah. Right? Right, that's that sense, like there's no sense of self, right? Totally immersed. And some of you may remember, this was about 20 years ago, there was um, uh, an NBA Finals. And I even heard Stephen Curry's views about playing in the zone. People know who Stephen Curry is? I, you never know with spirit rock audiences at sports. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't know. Um, but um, Michael Jordan was playing. And this was the finals. He was playing there. I think they were playing against Portland. And I think it was 1992. Anyone remember this? Okay. And he, in the first half, he shot seven straight three-pointers. They all went in, right? And he was in the zone. There was no sense of self. Then he walks by the scoring table and goes like this. Maybe you've seen that in film. You can look it up on YouTube. And it goes like that. What does that mean? Wow, he didn't even know it almost. Well, well, I interpreted it as um, self-consciousness. He becomes aware of it. Oh, you know, is it, but it's almost like saying it's not me, right? But he becomes aware of it. He misses his next shot. Right? And so... This sense of, the sense of flow is very interesting. It has uh, qualities of lack of self-consciousness, full immersion in an activity, often a sense of interconnection, like the boundaries are different. Um, there's, there's no addition of me or mine. For how many of you is that familiar in some way? Can you think of experiences like that? Yeah, yeah. Most, most people, and people who weren't raising their hand were shaking their heads, yes. That's an ordinary experience, I would say, of anatta. And it's very important both to tune into that and to know when it's happening and to let it expand. A lot of our practice has these two rhythms. We tune in to more of a sense of experience without a strong sense of self. And then we notice when the strong sense of self comes. We study it and then we let go of it. That's, that's the essence of the practice that we'll be doing. You know, again, there are a lot of further complexities that I mentioned about what about a sense of self where there's a wound, what about social conditioning. We'll get to that a little bit in the next segment, but the, base, the, the simplest sense of the practice we'll do is that we'll try to tune into those experiences where we're just with a flow. And I, I would interpret the, really one of the core teachings of the Buddha around anatta uh, that we more experience in meditation and then in daily life as similar to this flow experience. That is, we notice the core constituents of experience. We notice here's body sensation, here's a thought, here's an emotion, here's a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, here's, um, you know, here's an emotion, and so forth. And we just keep on tracking that and watch where the self glues onto it, or gets stuck on it, or says, this is mine, or I don't like this, or whatever. And we study that, and we try to release that grasping on or pushing away of experience. And that's a fundamental training. 
That's how the fundamental training, that's what we'll explore in the first segment of the afternoon around this particular teaching of Skanda. But does this start to make it a little more practical? And less of this, you know, again, it can get really complicated if we try to figure it out theoretically. But it really can be this very practical experience. We especially want to look for those experiences where there's just a sense of flow and we, and we, and we work with the concentration and the staying with the breath and so forth in order to um, quiet that really active mind. The really active, out-of-control mind makes the experience of anatta harder, right? And so a lot of our initial training is just to stabilize attention, to develop some concentration, not be ruled by the automatic mind, as is very common in our culture, right? You know, one of the teachers I studied with a little bit, Achan Buddha Dasa, when asked his view of Western civilization, said, lost in thought. <laughs> which, which always reminds me of what Gandhi said, asked a similar question. He said, what do you think of Western civilization? He said, it would be a good idea. <laughs> so um, so we, we have to train first to work with that automatic mind, which is very strong, probably in most or all of us. And um, meditation is very beautiful for that and it can open us up. I know when I was first learning meditation, uh, I started having the experience of witnessing a sunset without thinking all the time. That wasn't such a common experience before I learned to meditate. Of course, I could be with the sunset and appreciate it, but a lot of thinking, right? A lot of thinking. And so the meditation helps us to develop some degree of concentration, some degree of space around the habitual thinking so we can actually be with experience. It helps us with this flow experience and the immersion of experience. So that's a kind of an introduction to this theme. Again, trying to make it be really practical, open up to experiences where there's more of a sense of flow, of anatta, not self, see where there is a thick sense of self, a reaction, a contraction, a liking, a just being caught in thought. See that and release it. That's the core of our practice. Again, there are a lot of further subtleties about what do I do if I have this wound from the past that I have to deal with, right? And then I'll, I'll, I think I'll get to that some in the next segment. You know, because that's not, that's, one can't really just release that, you you know. It's not like, okay, get over it. You know, transcend that trauma. (laughs) Just meditate, let the trauma go. It doesn't work like that, right? Right, so that's a complexity we'll come back to. Uh, But the the core teaching is is that simple, I think. And that's how I'm going to be interpreting it. And to move away from a lot of the complexities. To make it very practical. Let me take, you know, I have room, and I think we'll use the mic if we can. I have room for maybe one or two questions before we do walking meditation. Could one of the volunteers help with the mic so everyone could hear? Any question about what I said, particularly of a practical nature? Just, just in terms of clarification, particularly? Hello? OK. 
Okay. Thank you. Okay. That, that's okay. There'll be there'll be time for uh, questions discussion later. I, either I <clears throat> either I was just very 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 clear, <laughs> or my calm voice lulled and shut down your thinking. <laughs> Don't know. Okay. Um, great. So let's. Um, we're going to go now to uh, walking meditation. And how many of you are have not had experience in walking meditation? Okay, uh, a few of you. I will meet after we break uh, in the back and work with anyone who needs instruction on walking meditation. And if you're rusty, though, that would be a good idea. It'd be pretty brief. Just <clears throat> excuse me, five or six minutes. And what I'd like to do, have us do in the walking meditation is to practice in some of the ways that I was suggesting. And again, we'll be doing for each of the segments quite a bit of practice. You know, again, um, some teaching, some talking, some discussion, but a lot of practice to have us have this sense of how to work in this fairly simple way with uh, opening to the sense of flow or experience without a strong sense of self, and then also tracking when the self gets strong. And we want to be careful in tracking the self when it gets strong, not to say, bad self, get out of there. We want to really have the spirit of just noticing, of really studying, of really noticing when the self arises, and the judgmental thought that I am thinking so much, there's so much self here. Uh, notice that as a thought. <laughs> okay. Notice that as a kind of reaction. So in the walking meditation, we want to do pretty much the same thing we did in the sitting that's earlier. We want to first, in the walking, stabilize attention. We have about a half hour for walking. We want to first stabilize attention um, by walking back and forth and just getting into the walking in the usual way we practice. And then maybe halfway through, it could be just be 10 minutes, maybe 10 minutes into the 30 minutes, open your attention and also start tracking when there's uh, a stronger sense of self arises. And we're going to be tracking that sense of self as it manifests through reactions, liking and disliking, like I like this, I don't like this, through mental preoccupation, such as when we're walking and just go into some thoughts about the future or the past. We're going to track it through self-image or self-consciousness. You know, I hope people can see how slowly I am walking. (laughs) If that appears, just say, okay, thick sense of self, noted, okay, back to, and then Um, So we'll be tracking that, and then also, um, if you notice that you're actually in a flow where you're maybe just with the sensations of walking, or there is less of a sense of self there, see if you can track that maybe with a very subtle observer. Interestingly, in meditation, we set up what I call the meditative self. And the meditative self tracks things, observes things, tries to concentrate, and so forth. 
it's a kind of a self. And eventually, in the afternoon, we'll let go of the meditative self. Right? But you can see how the meditative self is very important for developing meditation. Who's going to tell you to concentrate? <laughs> Who's going to tell you, come back here? Who's going to tell you, keep paying attention? Right? That's a kind of meditative self. It can be more subtle, but that's there. And so you might sometimes just try to have the sense of observer. And see if you can, uh, when you're feeling fairly quiet, see if you can just be with that flow and be with that flow experience with the sense of self being very weak, weak, or just a little bit in the background. It doesn't have to be 100% gone. Does that make some sense? Mm-hmm. So I'm inviting, much as we did in the meditation, think primarily just to track when the self is there and it's moderate or strong, primary. But then if you can, see if you can open to the flow experience. Right? And um, so I'll invite that. I'll go back and help with the uh, people needing some walking instruction. We'll have a bell. The bell will come with about seven or eight minutes left. Let's come back and we'll come. We'll stay in silence during the walking. And we'll come back for the next sitting and be, uh, we'll be sitting and I'll give some instructions uh, near the beginning uh, of that sitting. Okay? That will continue what we've been doing. Okay? And so I'll work with the group in the back now and then I'll come up here for a while if, there, if anyone wanted to talk about anything after I finish with that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.